adjust this. There's a drastic difference in height. Hey, Scott, if you can do me a favor, can you shoot me verse 1? What quarrels and what causes fights among you? I want you really to zero on that last part. Your passions. Today, this passage is going to help you understand a very hard truth. A hard truth that I think is very important for us to really internalize, for us to really think through well and consider every single day of our lives, which is the hard truth that we are the problem. Our desires, what we want, is what usually causes problems, conflicts, and this passage doesn't give room for you just to think about others. It's actually about also a relationship with God, which you could say is pride. It's about you. Isn't that the truth? I mean, how many times do you make plans first? You know, when I think about myself the least, when there's a problem. When there's a problem, it's so natural for us to think about everybody else around us, isn't it? Maybe it's because we're observing everyone else. Maybe it's because we're all so hypersensitive about all the problems that everyone else is committing. And I feel like these passages from two to four go in this pattern of how it usually goes many times so naturally for us. Our natural urges, as I titled it, the battle within. We're so confident many times in our intentions and our plans that what do we do in verse two? We don't even ask. We don't ask God or we don't ask anybody else. We just do. We just do what we want to do, what we think is right. What we've been convinced of is the right thing to do, the right path to go. And many times that will be in conflicts with others by not asking them how they feel. Many times we just assume that this is the better choice and we just do without asking. Then it says at the end, but the problem is you didn't ask. And then in verse 3, it precedes a logic of then when you do ask, when you do ask, you don't receive. Why? Because your motives, so natural to think about ourselves. So natural for me to think about a promotion. For example, as a Christian, I think, God, you know, I really want that promotion because if I get that promotion, I'll get more money. And if I get more money, then I can give more to you. But you notice the logic is I think about myself first. Not God, not anybody else, but myself first. It's not bad to want a promotion. It's not bad that good things happen in our lives. But the problem is that deep down in our hearts, many times, we're prideful. We're all prideful. We think about ourselves. And then when we approach God, we approach him like a genie. God, Give me this promotion. I want this promotion. I I planned my life this way. But what we end up doing, as it says in verse 4, we actually create a relationship, it says, with this world. We become its friend. Because what we end up doing is we actually make 
God the little g, we make us the big G. God is there to do our plans, to promote our wishes. And it says here in this passage that you're going to create, in a sense, an enemy out of God. It's going to create enmity. And it even says in verse 6, which James quotes from Proverbs 3, 34, which is that God opposes the proud, meaning you become an enemy of God. But it's natural, right? Because what you end up doing in your plans and your intentions in your life is to push God out. And why this matters is because there is no way you can effectively love people and especially effectively love God if the first person you're thinking of is yourself. Because everything then becomes about you first. But I like how Proverbs ends, which is where James is going to go for the rest of the time. He says, but God gives grace, meaning God is able to reach into your life and to give you something you don't deserve, grace, meaning that he's able to help you. But notice that there is a condition in this passage, humility. God gives grace to the humble. And today, I want us to reflect on what James is saying because this is the other important truth that James is laying down for us, the importance of humility in our life because humility in our life is in opposition of pride. Humility in our lives is creating friends with God. And just so we can work off of a similar definition of what humility is, because a lot of people misunderstand what humility is, especially for those that are not too familiar with Christianity, if you could show up that quote, a lot of times we think it's a sense of groveling, as it says there, or being passive. But that's not biblical humility. It's receptivity, meaning you're being receptive to understand the truth and applying it, learning it in every situation and leaning upon God for that wisdom. And James, is, he lists this as commands, going down from verse 7 all the way down to 10. But really, these are actually quite helpful, practical steps on how you can apply humility, how you can humble yourself more in your life so you can better serve those around you, not to get into conflict, but more importantly, to better serve and to love God. And if you notice, the first thing he says in verse 7 is you have to submit. You have to submit. Meaning that you have to accept Lord, God, as Lord over your life. That he has power, he has authority, he has a plan. That despite your plan, you are submissive to that plan. He is priority. And I know that's very tough. I remember when I first got out of college, my first job. My first job was at an office. I did sales. But the first month, I didn't really do too much sales. When I got out of college, the first thing I did is I ran a whole bunch of errands. Went to get copies, coffee, all those things. All those things I didn't want to do. I hated it. 
Was I have all this debt? I spent years studying to go get copies? I don't want to do that. But why did I do it? Just like why all of us do it when we first get into a job, because we want the job. And you understand that that person over you has power and authority, that he has the ability to promote you. He has the ability to control, in a sense, your financial future in that company. And in a second, he doesn't like you, he could just fire you, especially in a sales job. He could fire me right there if he didn't like me and go hire somebody else. And submission works that way with God. You might not like it sometimes. It's going to get uncomfortable, but you do it because you understand who God is. And his ability to send you to heaven or to hell. That's the reality of a relationship with God. There is no actually in between in this scenario. But I feel like sometimes for us, the trap becomes as Christians, when you've been in the church long enough, you almost like grow in your Christianity. And as we grow, we think we have more allowances to do things. But here's the understanding, the key when it comes to submission. Just like in everything, you have to look at an example. And who is the example of submission in our lives? Jesus. And if Jesus lived his whole entire life serving and would submit to the authority of God to go on the cross and die, then what right do we have as individuals to after a time of being a Christian demand anything else out of God except to obey and follow him? If our example of humility is serving others and God until the very end. That's what submission looks like. But two, it can't just be about submitting to God. Because with God, it's not just about a mental assent or recognizing. It's usually through actions and eternal, meaning internally in your heart. And it means a movement actually away. As it says at the end of verse 7, you're going to resist the devil. You're going to resist evil. It's a movement. It's actively moving away. It's not just staying in one place but actively choosing to do certain things given the options. Like, for example, I'm going to use my wife a lot today. I'm sorry, Mihi. I know you're in that baby room. But it's just so natural when I think about humility, I think about my wife. You know, when we get into conversations, especially, I mean, this happens with other people, but with my wife, there's always, I always know what to say. Like, even though she says something to me that I might not like, in my mind, I know exactly what to say. I have the right response, the, ah, I'm going to get you. You know what, what that would do? That's like a guaranteed trip to the couch. That's like a guaranteed fight. And that would be horrible. Then I have to spend the next 30, 40 minutes in this argument when, to be quite frankly, I messed up. I said probably something dumb because I didn't think about it. But it was for what? For me. To make me feel better because what she just said to me was hard to accept. That's resisting. And you're going to face this a lot of times in your life, aren't you? We all do. It's so natural for us to live through life that as we submit to God, there's going to be problems in our life. And it's going to be so easy to do the things that make us feel good. But we're going to have to resist those temptations and move away from that. And with God, it's never just a movement away. 
It's a movement towards, which brings us to verse 8, the third thing. Drawing near to God. And it says here, and there's a promise actually. The promise is that as you draw near, he draws near. This drawing near is, think about a relationship or a friendship, right? Since we're all, since the verb or the understanding is there as friends with the world, if we're friends with God, we're drawing near, just like a relationship with somebody. As you draw near to somebody, what ends up happening? You get closer. There's a relationship. You communicate more. You speak more. You're more open. You're more vulnerable. You grow. And just like with drawing near to God, there's a real relationship that as you seek God, as you draw near, that as you pray, as you read, as you come into this congregation on a Sunday and realize that this is a part of his body, you're drawing near. You're drawing near to God and he is drawing near to you. And he's probably causing a conviction sometimes in your hearts. And hopefully today it would be, man, I'm really more prideful than what I think I am. Drawing near. Fourth. Because as you draw near, it creates what? When you have friends with somebody, what does it do? There's an influence, isn't there? That's why, for example, with young kids, we're always so careful about who they hang around with because we understand that they influence the child's behavior. There is a saying in Portugal, this is where half my family's from, and the saying goes that if you show me your friends, I can tell you who you are. It's the understanding of whoever you're near, you're going to replicate. You're going to do, and if we're drawing near to God, we're mimicking God. Meaning that the purity of our intentions should change from ourselves to God, and that should reflect in our actions. But notice that it's not just action-based, it's also a cleansing heart. It means that internally, something is different. Intentions, motives change, just like a relationship with God. It's very important to understand that for God and our relationship with him, it's never just a mental understanding. It's never just a doing It's also an emotional understanding as well, which brings us to point five. It says, the command actually says, to mourn. To mourn. Which is this idea of repentance, which is to change direction and change your behavior. But see, but if James wanted to just communicate to repent, he would have just said repent. But what he's talking about here is actually an emotional understanding to the things that we do that are wrong, that we understand actually how hurtful that is, not just to the individual we're having a conflict with, but more importantly, we emotionally understand that it hurts our relationship with God. And James here at this point understands that none of us are perfect, that we all mess up, but what James is implying is that as you seek in humility to draw near, cleanse your hands, submit, that when you mess up to understand emotionally as well, there's a problem with what you just did or what you just thought. Because if, there, if all three of those ascents happen, you'll change your behavior. 
You'll change your thoughts. And in a sense, God is changing who you are. God is changing who you are. But it takes humility for that to happen, for us to squeeze our way out of our own lives and to think about others. And I just want to conclude with just two final thoughts if you're going to give me a couple more minutes. I said earlier that I'd be using my wife as another example, so this would be example number two. Because I think marriage is like the ultimate, when I think about humility, that's it. Especially when I was first married. When I was first married, man, I thought I was so smart. I thought I was right all the time. I I still think I'm right a lot of the time. That's That's another problem for another day. But especially when I was young, we used to get into arguments a lot. But the argument usually always started very similarly. It usually always started with her telling me about her day. Or we would share our day. You know, as a normal guy, as I listen to her, I'm not really listening to her. What I'm really doing is I'm thinking about what she's saying and I'm thinking about how can I correct this problem? Because she's already complaining about the third, fourth time. So I'm thinking about how to fix the problem. That's her right there with, with my third baby right there. We're married for 10 years, so something is going right. Jesus, help me. But the problem was that I kept thinking all the time what I could say to make the situation better. And I would just tune out the rest of the conversation. And then I would give her my advice. And the first thing she would say is like, Are you, were you listening to me? Were you listening to everything I said? And I'd be like, yeah. You should fix this by doing this and this and this. But you know what was obvious is that I wasn't listening, right? Because I was so convinced that she had a problem and that God had placed me in that situation to fix it. But you see, but that's pride. Because that means in that situation, I chose not to listen to her and not to love her, to just correct her problem. And just to kind of move on with the conversation. I didn't listen to her. I didn't listen when she most likely just wanted to share her day. In a caring way to show a friendship, a, you know, in a relationship as you share things and you grow. Or maybe she just wanted to vent to me about how things were. Pride does that, doesn't it? It creeps in in the weirdest ways. It creeps in when we don't expect it. And yet if we don't recognize it, it is very, very destructive. Because we create friends with the wrong G. There's a good Bible verse here that says a very similar thing. In 1 John 2.15 it says, Do not love the world and its things. Because if you do, God will not love you. And that's where I want to finish in my last thought, thinking about love. If you're a believer, there are two main commandments that we're asked to follow. Right? Do you guys know what it is? Love your God with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
The question is, how can you do that, though, if you're busy loving yourself? You can't. And that's why it matters. It matters. Pride matters because it hinders our ability to love others, and it especially hinders our ability to love God. And if you want to love God, you're going to have to submit to God. You're going to have to draw near to God. You're going to have to resist evil. You're going to have to cleanse your hands and your hearts that only he can do. You're going to need God. And humility is the only way you're going to do it to recognize that it's not about you, but it's about everybody else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. I feel like James is, is so direct and on point with one of the main things that we struggle with in our lives, pride. And it creeps in so easily, but yeah, we have to be so ever vigilant of it with you. And we can only do it with pride. And we can only do it with humility, Lord. So help us, Lord God, to have always humble hearts, to remember, Lord God, especially the humility that your son, Jesus Christ, displayed on the cross for us as our example of what real humility looks like. From the day, Lord God, he was born until the day he bore our sins on that cross, he showed us the ultimate example. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we, Lord, would follow in that pattern and serve others with such a great and powerful love as you have demonstrated and help us those here in this room that might struggle with that thought or might struggle with a relationship with you or might not have a relationship with you. I pray that you would help them, Lord, through this message to understand how important and how valuable it is that we draw towards you to be more effective in loving you and especially loving others. Thank you when we love you. Just let me pray.